Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder, assault, sexual assault, and animal cruelty. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Pocahontas County was not ready for a hippie invasion in 1980. It had been more than a decade since long-haired peaceniks flooded the U.S., but this area of West Virginia didn't want any part of it, then or now. It seemed like they had no choice. A group called the Rainbow Family had planned their annual gathering there, and despite the local politicians' best efforts, they couldn't be stopped. The Rainbows had organized a huge festival every summer since 1972. Each year, they formed a temporary commune on a different piece of public land. And this year's edition was planned in the Monongahela National Forest, which took up the majority of Pocahontas County. By mid-June of 1980, as many as 6,000 visitors had arrived and pitched their tents in the National Forest. Huge pots of organic stew bubbled in the shared kitchens, and festival-goers skinny-dipped in the clear water at all hours of the day. The camp was clean, and everyone called each other brother and sister. Strangers shouted, we love you, at each other, at least once a day. The rainbow gathering seemed like a final realization of the 1960s dream. Even many of the Appalachian locals eventually came around to it. But about a week in, the utopian bubble popped. Alongside a list of workshops and events, the festival's daily newsletter included two photos of unidentified women who had died on their way to the gathering. They were eventually identified as Vicki Durian and Nancy Santamero. The hitchhikers had been shot in the woods, just a few miles away from their destination. And if the rainbow gathering strained the tight-knit community in Pocahontas County, the 20-year search for their killer would completely rip them apart. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murders of 26-year-old Vicki Durian and 19-year-old Nancy Santamero. This week, we'll cover the women's journey to West Virginia and zero in on one of the main suspects. Next week, we'll cover the surprise confession that turned the case on its head and the court battle that left far too many questions unanswered. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state.
Because Vicki Durian and Nancy Santomero died on their way to the Rainbow Gathering, they're generally seen as symbols of 1980s counterculture. But in her book, The Third Rainbow Girl, author Emma Copley Eisenberg explains that they didn't start out that way. Vicki, the older of the two, was an Iowa farm girl, born in 1953. For the first 15 years of her life, she was a diligent rule follower. She helped out on the farm, joined the future homemakers of America, and went to Mass every Sunday with her seven siblings. She loved school and took home good grades, but didn't seem to have any aspirations of going to college. She'd make a great wife one day, she knew that. She just needed to wait for the right guy to come along. When she wasn't finishing homework or doing chores around the farm, Vicky glued herself to the television. She loved peeking into other worlds and was particularly transfixed by the vampire-themed soap opera Dark Shadows. When she was 15, Vicky caught part of the TV broadcast of Woodstock. She fantasized about joining the muddy bohemians dancing on the screen. She started buying psychedelic rock records and imagining a different kind of life for herself. In the late 1960s, anything seemed possible. But as the 1970s began, Vicky's optimism faded. The family business tanked, and her parents both had to take second jobs. Then her high school boyfriend, the kind of boy she thought she might marry, cheated on her. Soon after, at 17 years old, she realized she was pregnant. But she knew she wasn't ready to be a mother. So, after finishing high school, Vicky moved as far away as she could. She carried the baby to term and then gave him up for adoption. Vicky returned to Iowa knowing that things would never be the same. Her boyfriend berated her for getting rid of their child, and she told him to get lost. With her golden girl image completely shattered, she started thinking about Woodstock again. Vicky cut her hair and went vegetarian. She worked in a nursing home during the day and listened to the Grateful Dead at night. Eventually, she saved up enough money to get out of her parents' house, and then she started hitchhiking to California. Other drifters nicknamed her Bright Star because of her infectious smile. She eventually got to the West Coast and stayed there for several years. She still kept in touch with her family and sent frequent updates to her sister in Iowa. I'm sure Iowa's in its peak autumn colors by now. I do miss the change of the seasons. It's just not the same here in California. But change can come in other ways, can it? I read that there will be five planets lining up in Scorpio in a few weeks, and I feel the Earth will go through some drastic changes. I think I will, too. By 1980, 26-year-old Vicky was living in Tucson, Arizona, working as a home health aide. She didn't make much money, but she loved having a job that let her leave on road trips and spiritual adventures whenever she wanted. While she was in Tucson, she met 19-year-old Nancy Santamero. Nancy was born in Long Island, New York. She spent her early years in Levittown, a planned community that set the standard for mass-produced suburbs across the country. She was a star basketball player and social butterfly, a middle child with three older sisters and one younger brother. Nancy was easygoing, but had no idea what she wanted to do with her life. Despite her average grades, college felt like the logical next step. 
She spent a single year at SUNY Buffalo, but quickly realized that higher education wasn't for her. Besides, it was too cold up there. After Nancy dropped out of college, she returned to Long Island and puttered around for a few months, trying to figure out where to go next. She knew she loved animals and the outdoors, but wasn't sure about much else. At some point in the summer of 1979, she talked to a friend who'd just returned from the University of Arizona. They described how warm it was in Tucson, the complete opposite of New York, and that was all Nancy needed to hear. By the fall, she was living with a friend in Tucson, trying to piece together the next chapter of her life. The 19-year-old liked to wander around downtown in her off time, staring at the tall cacti and sharp desert shadows. She liked to sit in front of the local food co-op and watch the customers going in and out. One day, another woman stopped and struck up a conversation with her, 26-year-old Vicki Durian. Just when I thought I knew everyone in town. What's your name? I, uh, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you that. Oh, you must be really new around here. I mean, what's the worst that could happen? I could indoctrinate you into some alternative lifestyle. Oh, brainwash you with lentil soup and tie-dye shirts. (laughs) That doesn't sound too bad, actually. I'm Nancy. Just got here a few weeks ago. Well, welcome to Tucson, Nancy. I think you'll fit right in. Say, are you a Scorpio? Um, yeah. How'd you know? I can just tell. I'm a Scorpio, too. Not easy out there for us. Come on, walk with me. The women connected instantly. Nancy told Vicky that she was looking for a place to live that wasn't a friend's couch. Vicky immediately gave her the names of some possible roommates. Nancy moved into a group house that Vicky had recommended and found a job at a thrift store. When she wrote letters to friends from home, they included glowing descriptions of her new friend. Even though they enjoyed their lives in Tucson, both Nancy and Vicky had a hard time staying in one place for too long. They traveled constantly, both together and separately, throughout the spring of 1980. But even their weekend trips around the Southwest began to feel stifling. They needed a real adventure. So when another friend of Vicky's called to ask about going to the Rainbow Gathering in West Virginia that July, it was an easy yes. Vicky had most likely already heard about the Rainbow Gathering. The annual event had been happening along the West Coast since she was 18, and the organizers sent flyers for the event to food co-ops all across the country, inviting anyone and everyone to the self-proclaimed Peace Festival. These gatherings are free, and everyone everywhere is invited to come and share together. Bring your friends and all your relations together with us in the hopes of spreading the true truth that humanity is beautiful, that we can live and work together in cooperation and joy. The flyer included a hand-drawn map of the Monongahela National Forest in West Virginia. The roads were marked with suggested routes for hitchhikers and road trippers who wanted to attend the gathering. The dotted roads on the map were not recommended because locals in the area were uptight, and almost all of the roads on the map were dotted. When the Rainbow family sent out these flyers, they probably suspected a less than warm welcome in Pocahontas County, and they were partially right. Most of the residents in the area seemed indifferent toward the Rainbows, 
but local politicians were outraged by the gathering. West Virginia's Secretary of State said that the Rainbow family wasn't allowed in the area because they didn't align with West Virginia values. He encouraged a few residents to file a federal injunction that would stop the festival. Other state politicians called the attendees misfits and leeches. But the federal injunction was tossed out by a judge. The Rainbows had just as much right to the public land as anyone else, and like it or not, they were coming to Pocahontas County. 26-year-old Vicki Durian most likely didn't know about these political squabbles, and even if she did, she probably didn't care. The Rainbow Gathering looked like freedom to her, and she wanted to take her new friend, 19-year-old Nancy Santamero, along for the ride. They were also joined by 18-year-old Liz Jondro. Her story was similar to Vicky and Nancy's. After feeling suffocated in suburban Connecticut, she dropped out of high school halfway through her senior year and started hitchhiking west. She made it as far as Tucson, where one driver left her in front of an organic food store. The teenager sat on a curb nearby, not sure where to go next. Then a warm-looking woman walked out of the store carrying a loaf of bread. She tore off a piece and gave it to Liz, then asked where she'd come from. This woman was, of course, Vicki Durian. She took Liz under her wing, just like she had Nancy. The three women planned to meet up at Vicki's parents' house in Iowa and hitchhike to the festival from there. In early summer 1980, the trio piled into Vicki's childhood bedroom. Her sister had just given birth, and the travelers happily joined in on the baby shower. After a few days, the three women set off for West Virginia. All of them were experienced hitchhikers, so they moved fairly quickly. Liz handled the logistics, and Vicky was happy to wave down a driver and make conversation. They made it to North Carolina in late June 1980. But when they got off at a rest stop, Liz told them she wouldn't be able to join the last leg of the trip. Her father was getting remarried in Vermont, and she wanted to be there for him. But Liz told author Emma Copley-Eisenberg that this was, in fact, a lie. Liz had a horrible relationship with her father and didn't want to go to his wedding. But she'd had a premonition the night before, a bone-deep feeling of dread. Her gut was telling her she shouldn't keep traveling with Vicky and Nancy, and the marriage provided a convenient excuse. The other girls accepted Liz's explanation and wished her well. They parted ways at a truck stop near Richmond, where Liz caught a ride on a northbound truck. Vicky and Nancy stood on the other side of the road waiting for someone to take them west to the gathering. Liz never saw them again. Or at least, she never saw them alive. Coming up, a Pocahontas County local makes a gruesome discovery. I'm Sarah Turney host of Disappearances, a Spotify original from ParCast. In 2020, I used social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and finding that the truth may be even harder to locate than the person. Who forced a famed explorer to lose his way? What did a missing Hollywood starlet leave behind? And how could the heiress to a Chicago candy fortune just vanish? 
Every Thursday on Disappearances, join me for a deeper look into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Tracking timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the actual truth. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Listen free only on Spotify. Now back to the story. On the evening of June 25, 1980, a 21-year-old college student carefully drove through the winding forested roads in Pocahontas County, West Virginia. He lived in a lean-to cabin on the face of Briary Knob, one of the dozens of small mountains in the area. As the sun began to set and his truck bumped along the muddy road, he saw a sudden flash of color. Two people were lying to the left of the road. The young man instinctively averted his eyes. It looked like they might have been sharing an intimate moment, and he didn't want to intrude. But as his truck trundled by, the bodies didn't seem to move at all. The 21-year-old parked his truck in front of the cabin, which was only a few yards away from the pair. He glanced back. The people still weren't moving. The daylight was fading fast, so he hiked over to get a closer look. Two women lay next to each other on their backs, their feet facing the dirt path. One had a red University of Iowa sweatshirt on, the other a blouse with embroidered blue flowers, and they'd both been shot multiple times. The young man panicked, ran back to his cabin, and called the authorities. A sheriff's deputy arrived first, then a state trooper. A pair of volunteer EMTs slowly made their way up the mountain in one of the county's three ambulances. The trooper took a few photographs and examined the crime scene. There was a set of tire tracks at the end of the driveway that wasn't from the college student's truck. The treads were strange. It looked like the vehicle had summer tires in the front and thicker winter tires in the back. And it looked like the car had scraped a nearby rock on its way out, leaving a few metal flakes and a bit of orange paint. But other than that, the only evidence at the scene were the bodies themselves. The ambulance finally arrived, nearly 45 minutes after it was called. An EMT hopped out and started examining the bodies. They were still warm, and rigor mortis hadn't set in at all, meaning that the girls had died in the last few hours. Their eyes were wide open. The EMT felt like they were staring at her. She asked the trooper if he had any idea who these girls were, but he had no answers. The EMTs loaded the bodies onto gurneys and carefully drove back to the morgue at a nearby hospital. Robert L. Kyer, another trooper from the West Virginia State Police, met them there. Al Kyer stepped into the cold room. One woman had two gunshot wounds to the chest, the other had three around her upper torso. A small knife and a folded-up flyer for the rainbow gathering had been found in their pockets. The festival was only a few miles away from where their bodies were found. These women must have been heading there, thought al There was no way they were locals. The bodies were airlifted to Charleston for a complete autopsy, but al work was just getting started. He didn't sleep at all that night. 
He visited the crime scene with a few other state troopers the next morning on June 26, 1980. Even in the full light of day, there wasn't any evidence besides the tire tracks and a bit of dried blood on the grass. It seemed like the only connection these women had to the area was the Rainbow Gathering. So the officers knew where they needed to go next. Alkire and the other troopers cautiously entered the festival, clutching printed-out photographs of the dead women. They asked various participants if they recognized them, but no one seemed to. Eventually, Alkire was introduced to one of the Rainbow leaders, who graciously took copies of the photos and promised to include them in the next day's newsletter. If anyone came forward, the troopers would be alerted immediately. Without knowing these women's identities, Alkire didn't have much to go on. Thankfully, the medical report from Charleston came back quickly. They were both young, one in her late teens and the other in her mid-twenties. There was no evidence of sexual assault, and they had moderate levels of alcohol in their systems. It looked like one of them had one drink that day, and the other had about three. The medical examiner agreed with the EMT who had found the bodies. They died within three hours of discovery, so between 5 and 8 p.m. on June 25, 1980. It looked like they'd been shot with large-caliber bullets at incredibly close range. All of the bullets entered at about a 45-degree downward angle. This either meant that the shooter was elevated above them or that they were sitting or kneeling when the bullets hit. None of this pointed to a clear scenario, and Alkair remained baffled. By midday on June 26th, word had started to spread. Because no one knew who the women were, they started to refer to them by a shared moniker, the Rainbow Girls. And as news of their fate made its way across the county, residents started speculating about what might have happened. Look, I didn't see the bodies, but the little bit I heard was rough. Just eyes wide open, no chance of resuscitation. It looked like there were char marks from the bullets on their faces. You recognize them? No way. Those were rainbow types through and through. Can't be from here. Well, how would you say those rainbow types got up to Briary Knob? Hell, I hardly know how to get up there. <laughs> well, I think how they got up there is the wrong question. I'm more interested in who took them. The moment that people heard about the murder, they all had the same suspicion as Al-Khair. The killer had to be local. There were two types of people in the county at that time, residents and rainbows, and this did not seem like the work of a traveling hippie. In fact, the women might have been killed because they were on their way to the gathering. Even though most residents were indifferent towards the hippies, there were certainly a few who wanted them gone. Meanwhile, in the nearby woods, the rainbow gathering was in full swing, but there was a strange tension running through the campsite. The girls' pictures had been printed in the newsletter that day, with a caption asking if anyone recognized them. It looked like two members of their spiritual family had been picked off before they even had a chance to participate. No one had come forward to identify the women in the photos, but someone there knew exactly who the girls were. Kathy Santamero, Nancy's older sister, was at the Rainbow Gathering. She'd planned to meet up with Nancy there. When the 19-year-old didn't show, Kathy didn't think much of it, 
but the photo in the newsletter gave her pause. She noticed that one of the girls had her hair in braids. Nancy wore braids all the time, and on closer examination, the girl looked like her, too. For a second, Kathy wondered if it really was her little sister. But then she showed the photo to a friend who dismissed the idea. Kathy tried to calm herself down and look at the facts. Nancy had probably just become wrapped up in another adventure and bailed on the rainbow gathering altogether. That seemed way more likely than being gunned down in the woods. The gathering went on for another week after the murders. In early July, the Rainbows packed up their camp and went home. Kathy Santamero drove back to New York. She still hadn't heard from her little sister. Then, one of Kathy's friends from the gathering called her. He had been looking at the pictures more and really thought one of them could be Nancy. A newspaper article said that the bodies were being held in Charleston. So, without telling her parents, Kathy started driving south. When she entered the morgue, Kathy steeled herself to look at the bodies. One of the dead women had a bracelet on her wrist. Kathy had made that bracelet for her baby sister. It was Nancy. Kathy raced back to her parents' home in Long Island and broke the news to them. Kathy knew that Nancy was traveling with 26-year-old Vicki Durian and alerted the police Vicky's parents found out that night. As the Santamero and Durian families processed their grief, Kathy realized she'd forgotten something. Nancy had been traveling in a trio, and if only two bodies were found, that meant one of the girls had to be missing or in serious danger. Authorities all over were told to be on the lookout for the so-called third rainbow girl. Officers scoured the woods where Nancy and Vicky were found. After a week of frantic searching, State Trooper Robert Alkire's phone rang. It was Liz John Drow herself. Luckily, she was very much alive. Identifying all of the women may have felt like a triumph to Alkire, but many of his most basic questions about the case remained unanswered. For one, he still had no idea why the women were killed. In his mind, there were three possibilities. Vicky and Nancy could have been murdered because they symbolized the Rainbow family. They could have been victims of a robbery gone wrong, or the motive could have been sexual. At first, the sexual angle seemed like the most likely. The scenario was sickeningly easy to imagine. The young hitchhikers could have gotten into a car with someone who intended to take advantage of them. Perhaps they resisted and the driver became violent, or he might have killed them during the act just for the sick thrill of it. But the medical examiner had found no signs of assault on the women, and there was no semen on or near the bodies. So that motive was moved to the bottom of the list. And Alkire didn't have much time to puzzle over the basic details of the case. As soon as the Rainbow Girl's names were released, his office was swamped with tips. Dozens of people claimed that they'd seen the girls at some point before they died. They sat in my diner for two, maybe three hours, kept ordering black coffees and toast. Two young women walked past my house and stopped to show me their Swiss army knife. It had to be them, right? They bought something at the general store, I swear. They said they were from Arizona and everything. It was somewhere between 5.30 and 6 o'clock. 
Don't remember what they bought, but they paid for it in coins from a little velvet change purse. Oh, and then they left and got into a black Chevy Nova. Alkire was sure that most of these stories were bogus, but he was intrigued by the general store cashier's statement. He asked her a few more questions and learned that the man driving the Chevy was lanky, clean-shaven, and blonde. The man bought $6 worth of gas, then turned right on State Route 219 toward the Rainbow Gathering. The state troopers started scouring the county for Chevy Novas and any suspicious characters who fit this description. He also looked into any ex-convicts in the area, as well as those who lived near the crime scene. There were only about 10,000 people living in Pocahontas County, so it was a fairly quick search, but it did leave Alkire with three solid suspects. First, there was Arnold Cutlip, who lived within earshot of the crime scene and had a history of domestic abuse. Next was Palmer Adkison, who'd been seen near Briary Knob on the day of the murders. Adkison was also under investigation in an unrelated murder-for-hire case. The final suspect was a local flasher. Alkire looked into each of these men. Unfortunately, both Cutlip and Adkison had decent alibis, and even though the flasher didn't have a clear alibi, he was also dropped from the list for unknown reasons. By the end of July 1980, the suspect list had been winnowed down to zero. Alkire wasn't sure where to go next. The case seemed stagnant. Nothing meaningful had been found at the crime scene, and the full examinations of the body seemed to be awash as well. Alkire still insisted that the killer had to live in the area, but he'd already interviewed anyone remotely suspicious in Pocahontas County. None of them seemed like viable suspects. Then, in late summer, a new piece of evidence showed up. A group of deer hunters found Vicky and Nancy's backpacks deep in the woods. They'd been roughly hidden under a bush, about 60 miles away from where their bodies were found. Nothing was stolen from the bags. It ruled out robbery as a possible motive. So the only real motive left was hatred of the Rainbow family. Alkire threw himself into this one, trying to track down anyone who had expressed strong negative feelings toward the gathering. But every lead fell flat. Summer turned to fall. Tips and leads slowed to a trickle. Vicky and Nancy had both been buried in their hometowns, and Liz Jondro wanted nothing to do with the investigation. Alkire continued to work the case, but other investigations started to take up his time. He stayed in contact with the Durian and Santomera families, but their conversations became less and less frequent. Two years passed before the Durians got another call about Vicky's death, but it wasn't from Alkire. It was around 9 p.m. on a Friday in July 1982. Vicky's father, Howard Durian, picked up the phone. The man on the line said he was calling from Pocahontas County. It was really awful what happened to Howard's daughter, and he wanted to say sorry. The caller went on to say that he'd gone to high school with some of the investigators. They were small-town cops, not the sharpest. Howard should probably contact the FBI if he actually wanted to know who killed Vicky. Howard was terrified. After a few moments of silence, he asked what the man's name was. The caller refused to answer. All he said was, 
that he wasn't the murderer. Then he hung up. Howard contacted Alkire, who put a trace on the Durian's phone line. When the man called again, the police were able to identify him immediately. His name was Jacob Beard, and he would spend the next 18 years trying to explain that conversation. Coming up, Alkire interrogates Jacob Beard, and a shocking new theory emerges. Now, back to the story. Jacob Beard had lived in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, for almost all of his life. So, of course, he'd heard of the Rainbow Murders. The story was unavoidable when it happened. But in the two years since, the 34-year-old had all but forgotten it. He was focused on other things. Beard ran a cattle farm, but business wasn't steady enough to support his wife and three daughters. So he worked a second job selling and repairing tractors and other farm equipment. His packed schedule didn't leave much time to think about a local cold case. But then, one day in July of 1982, Beard claimed that he was abruptly reminded of the murders. He said that he was eating lunch next to the shop when a friend struck up a conversation about them. After this, Beard spent the rest of the workday obsessing over the details and wondering who could have done it. It was a small county, So if the killer was from the area, it seemed possible that Beard knew them. One night soon after that, as Beard thumbed through the newspaper, he saw an article commemorating the murders. He felt awful that this had happened in his hometown and felt an urgent need to call the families of the victims and say sorry. He didn't know how to pronounce Santamero, so he opted for the Durians. Beard later claimed that he was tipsy but not drunk, when he did this. But he had a reputation for drinking heavily, so his definition may have been skewed. He didn't think much of the call with Howard Durian, and within a few weeks it had completely slipped from his memory. When a sheriff's deputy showed up at the gas station and took him in for questioning, Jacob was confused. He didn't know what he'd done wrong. He was taken into an interrogation room. Robert Alkire sat down across from him. The state trooper started with a question that he already knew the answer to. If Jacob Beard called the Durian family earlier that month. At first, Beard denied it. But after a few minutes, he changed his tune. He said that yes, he had made those calls, but not to threaten anyone. He just wanted to say sorry. Alkair didn't buy this explanation. He pressed Jacob on his whereabouts on June 25, 1980 the day of the murders. Jacob had a surprisingly clear memory of his whereabouts, even though more than two years had passed. He said he was working at the tractor sales company until the late afternoon when he left to visit a customer. He finished the house call around 5.15, then drove home, ate a quick dinner, and headed back into town for a school board meeting. He said he arrived at the meeting around 7 or 7.30. He didn't see any rainbow gathering participants that day. Jacob didn't say anything incriminating, so Alkire had no choice but to let him go. The two men agreed to stay in touch. Then Alkire got to work trying to verify his story. First, he checked if others saw Beard at that school board meeting. 
Several people did, so it seemed like he was telling the truth from 7.30 onward. Al-Khair tried to verify the house call he made by checking the company time cards. The car did say that he finished the job at 5.15 p.m., but it didn't include the customer's name. Also, the time was written in pencil, which Al-Khair found strange. But without anything else to connect Beard to the crime, the trooper was stuck. A few more months passed. Then, on December 26, 1982, the Pocahontas County Magistrate's Office called Al-Khair. A woman had contacted the sheriff's office about Jacob Beard, but it had nothing to do with the Rainbow Murders. Instead, she'd claimed that he tried to intimidate her with a shocking act of animal cruelty. The woman's name was Brenda Hillary. She'd been having an extramarital affair with Beard for several years. She'd even been with him on the night of the Rainbow Murders, when they drove home together from the school board meeting. But their relationship had deteriorated in the last few months. According to Brenda, Beard called her on Christmas Eve and said that he needed to see her. He didn't sound sober, so she told him to stay away. The conversation escalated, and she said she never wanted to see him again. Then Brenda rounded up her four daughters, checked on her pets, and left the house to go to church. When Brenda returned home, it looked like someone had broken in. And then she saw the pets. Her English sheepdog was splayed out on the ground, bleeding from his back. It looked like he'd been stabbed. The scene in her bedroom was even worse. Her cat was laying in a pool of blood under her bed, barely able to breathe. Someone had tried to slice the animal open, and it was bleeding out fast. Brenda was positive that this was Beard's doing. She filed the complaint, and within two days, Jacob Beard was arrested for animal cruelty. He paid off his bail immediately, and the case ultimately didn't go to trial. Alkire had seen Beard as a viable suspect before Brenda's call, but this violent story made him completely obsessed. In the first two months of 1983, he interviewed Beard three more times about the Rainbow Murders. Each time, the suspect insisted that he didn't know anything, and each time, Alkire refused to believe him. Then in early February, Beard's story suddenly changed. In a meeting with Alkire and the county prosecutor, Beard said he remembered something new about the day of the murder. He was driving home from the house call around 5.30 p.m. when he saw a few locals hanging out in their cars near the entrance to Droop Mountain State Park. This was very close to Briery Knob, where Vicky and Nancy's bodies were found. Beard recognized one of the cars. It belonged to a friend from high school named Christine Cook. While he claimed he didn't see Christine there, he did allegedly see her boyfriend, Palmer Adkison, and his close friend, Bill McCoy. Beard remembered seeing two more figures inside one of the parked cars. He implied that they were the Rainbow Girls. While he didn't accuse anyone outright, Beard seemed to be saying that Adkinson and McCoy might have been with the women on the night that they were killed. This new tidbit sent Alkire's head spinning. Palmer Adkinson had been on the initial list of suspects, but he'd fallen off the investigator's radar in the time since. If this story was true, they'd need to track him down again. 
But Al-Qaeda didn't want to jump to any conclusions. He asked Beard why he hadn't brought up this information before and why his recollection seemed to be so fuzzy. Beard shrugged and said he didn't want to incriminate anyone. The detective remained skeptical. To him, it really seemed like Beard pulled all of this out of thin air. But the county prosecutor had the opposite reaction. He believed Beard and wanted to get more details out of him. Without stopping to consult with Alkire, the prosecutor offered Beard an immunity agreement. If Beard signed it, he'd be protected from prosecution as an accessory to murder. That meant he could tell the authorities about everything he saw and wouldn't need to worry about prison time unless he pulled the trigger himself. According to the book, The Third Rainbow Girl, Alkire didn't approve of this. He personally didn't think Beard was a trustworthy witness, and protecting him from any kind of prosecution seemed like a bad idea to him, but it was too late. After Beard signed the immunity agreement, Alkire did his best to verify this new version of events. First, he contacted Christine Cook. Cook didn't remember where she was that night. She might have been on Droop Mountain with a few friends, but she was certain that Jacob Beard wasn't there. She also insisted that she would have remembered if the two Rainbow Girls were with them. According to her, they weren't. Alkire puzzled over this information for a few days, but then Jacob Beard contacted the state trooper's office again, saying he had even more information to hand over. According to a police report... Beard allegedly said that another woman was killed alongside Vicky and Nancy, and he knew what had happened to her. The trooper doubted this statement for one obvious reason. It sounded like Beard was referring to Liz Jondro, the so-called third rainbow girl, and Liz was alive. Still, Alkire arranged to meet with Beard later that evening. What happened at that meeting is still up for debate. According to Al-Khair, Beard launched into the story the moment he sat down. He said that he was working on his farm one day in early September of 1980, a little more than a month after the Rainbow Murders. He was running some crops through a corn chopper when two men arrived at the property, Palmer Atkinson and Arnold Cutlip. Al-Khair looked into both of them in the earliest days of the investigation. According to the police report, Beard claimed that Cutlip and Adkinson were looking for a man named Gerald Brown. When Beard said that Brown wasn't there, the men looked frustrated. Adkinson started to walk towards Beard and accidentally tripped over a part of the corn chopper. And then he did something truly shocking. The report said that Palmer Adkinson opened up his companion's truck and pulled out a lifeless female body. She was pale and thin, covered in dark gray fabric. The two men hoisted her up and placed her cold corpse in Jacob's corn chopper, then flipped the machine on. After her body was disposed of, the two men allegedly made Jacob promise he couldn't tell a soul. Then they sped away in Cutlip's truck. There was absolutely no evidence that this story was true. Running a body through a corn chopper seemed like something only two-bit criminals in the movies would do. And more importantly, Liz Jondro was alive. But for the sake of the investigation, Alkire carried on as if he wasn't aware of these basic facts. At the end of the meeting, the detective condensed his notes into a written statement. Beard reviewed it and signed his name. 
But according to Jacob Beard, something very different happened in that interrogation room. As the case went forward, Beard claimed that he never told this story. In Beard's version of the events, Alkire threatened to send him to jail on a baseless charge if he didn't say something incriminating about Adkisson and Cutlip. Beard said that Alkire locked him in the room for several hours. Then, when his will was sufficiently broken, Alkire started asking him leading questions about how he'd hypothetically get rid of a body. He claimed that Alkire twisted his words into the corn chopper story, and by the time Alkire handed him the pen, he was too exhausted to think about the consequences. He just wanted to go home. But no matter how it happened, once the statement was signed, Beard couldn't take it back. And now that Arnold Cutlip and Palmer Atkinson were officially implicated, Alkire had free reign to go after them again. Even if Beard did present this story to Alkire, it's unclear why the state trooper continued to follow up on it. It's possible that he was desperate and hoped that there was some nugget of truth hidden in the corn chopper story. Whatever the motivation was, Alkire moved forward with the investigation. He sent the corn chopper to a state crime lab for forensic testing and started looking for the new suspects. As it turned out, Atkinson was already in prison for a separate crime, and Cutlip was easy to find. Even though Cutlip denied the accusations, a magistrate said there was probable cause to hold him for murder. Bail was set so high, it was impossible for him to get out of the county jail. When Cutlip was brought in for an initial hearing, Beard repeated the story under oath. The local press caught wind of it, and the rumor mill started churning again. Everyone seemed to have a story about Jacob Beard. Based on Bill Jensen's 2003 investigation for the Long Island Press, some saw him as a humble family man, while others saw an erratic, violent bully. I heard that in high school, he liked to walk into a pen of pigs and swing around a chainsaw, a running chainsaw. Makes that whole cat thing a bit less surprising, huh? Well, when he's sober, he's only ever been nice to me. But he's different when he's drunk, like a total Jekyll and Hyde sort of thing. Many of these stories sound like exaggerations or complete fabrications. But the fact that so many residents were sharing tall tales does point to Jacob Beard's overall reputation. By the spring of 1983, Many in the community seemed to be questioning his character. And as rumors about Jacob Beard flew across the county, so did theories about the Rainbow Murders. People started pointing fingers again, almost three years after the crime occurred. And with that, more suspects were carted off to jail. On April 6, 1983, 20-year-old Bobby Lee Morrison said that he saw Gerald Brown commit the murders. Brown was a local businessman who'd also been mentioned in Jacob Beard's corn chopper story. Morrison claimed that on June 25, 1980, he'd been riding in Brown's truck when they picked up two female hitchhikers. They stopped on Briary Knob Road to drink some moonshine, and then Brown made a sexual advance toward the women. They refused, and Brown started driving toward the rainbow gathering again. Morrison fell asleep for a while, he woke up to the sound of gunshots. He helped Brown dump the girls' bodies on the side of the road and later helped him to get rid of their backpacks. Then he vowed to never speak of it again. 
It was unclear why Morrison chose to come forward when he did. Nevertheless, he was arrested immediately, and Brown followed close behind. Al Kyer and the rest of the state troopers spent several weeks trying to piece together a full case against Brown. The evidence against him was surprisingly compelling. Neighbors said that Brown referred to himself as a hippie killer at one point, and his girlfriend recalled him bursting into tears on a drive through Droop Mountain State Park, telling her that he'd done awful things. She also remembered a turquoise necklace she'd found in Brown's truck. He told her that it was from one of his rainbow friends. He told her she could keep it because those friends wouldn't need it anymore. But while Brown's case got stronger, Morrison's took a nosedive. It became increasingly difficult to believe that the 20-year-old was involved in the case. At one point, the officers asked him to show them where he dumped the girls' belongings. He led them to a spot more than 50 miles from where the backpacks were actually found. To make matters worse, Morrison's own girlfriend said that he wasn't even in town on the day of the Rainbow Murders. According to her, he was gone on a fishing trip. So it didn't come as much of a surprise when, in late April 1983, Morrison recanted his statement. He said that someone forced him to offer up this story, and that someone was Jacob Beard. The charges against Morrison were dropped almost immediately, and he was released from jail in May 1983. Both Brown and Cutlip continued to be held. Then, in mid-summer of 1983, the case against Cutlip fell apart completely. The state crime lab announced that they'd found no trace of human blood or tissue on the corn chopper. This proved, once and for all, that the story in al police report about the so-called third rainbow girl was a lie. But it still wasn't clear whose lie it was. After more than 180 days in jail, Arnold Cutlip was released sometime in the fall of 1983. The case against Gerald Brown fell apart after Morrison was released, and the indictment against him was dropped in late October. After an 18-month pop of activity, it looked like the Rainbow Murders case was going dormant again. Robert Alkire and his team still saw Jacob Beard as their number one suspect, but they just didn't have enough evidence to convict him of anything. Little did they know that in just a few months, a completely new suspect would confess to the murders, and he'd do it from a maximum security prison more than 600 miles away. Thanks again for tuning into Unsolved Murders. We'll be back next Tuesday with our second episode on the Rainbow Murders. For more information on the deaths of Vicki Durian and Nancy Santamero, amongst the many sources we used, we found The Third Rainbow Girl by Emma Copley Eisenberg, as well as Bill Jensen's investigative series, Long Island's Lost Girls, Broken Rainbow, and the Long Island Press, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories is a Spotify original from ParCast. 
Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Unsolved Murders was written by Kylie Harrington, with writing assistance by Giles Hofseth and Abigail Cannon. Fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tom Bauer, Kai Jordan, Drew Lawn, Melissa Medina, and Laith Walshlager. Unsolved Murder stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. <laughs> <laughs>